Cascadia and the edge of the world, Euphomet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. All right, good evening. I'm Jim Perry, and you are listening to Night Drift, presented by Euphomet. Broadcasting tonight from my home studio in the hinterlands of the Oregon coast, directly to the mothership. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW in Seattle, and streaming worldwide at nightdrift.com. Tonight, a conversation in front of a live Patreon audience, and tonight, Andrew Jewell, the publisher of Strange Days. It's a zine on all sorts of Fordian topics, you, me, and my special returning co-host, Darcy Staniforth. That's tonight. So there'll be no calls tonight, but you can join the conversation on Twitter by using hashtag Nightdrift. I'm Jim Perry, Darcy Staniforth, Andrew Jewell, tonight on Nightdrift, right after this. Jim Perry, welcome back to Night Drift. A big thank you to our sponsors and AMC Network Shutter and our patrons over at patreon.com slash who are joining me right now in the process of recording this. Thank you for making the show possible and thank you for listening. Now, on to the show. She's a paranormal investigator, historian, writer, teacher. She lectures on death, grief, and dying. She's my frequent co-host during Patreon hangouts, such as tonight. Darcy Staniforth. Hey, Darcy. Hi, Jim. It's great to be here again. And our guest, Andrew Jewell, writer, filmmaker, and publisher of Strange Days, a self-published Fordian zine. It's full of original stories, essays, and firsthand accounts about the strange and unusual things around us. Stories of ghosts, UFOs, men in black, cryptids, exorcists, and more. It also features the work of many great photographers and many great writers. Volume 9 was just released. Andrew, thank you so much for coming back to Night Drift. Hey, Jim. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Firstly, for those uninitiated, just tell us a little bit more about Strange Days. I think that I would be hard-pressed to give a better intro than you did. But yeah, it's it's a small sort of pocket-sized publication that I self-publish and do a majority of the writing for and the editing for although not very well sometimes um (laughs) and it's um it it was sort of inspired by old publications such as fate magazine the idea of compiling all of these interesting and strange topics in one place uh it's 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 a much smaller undertaking than that they're usually um, usually short, sort of bite-sized stories. But yeah, as you said, it, it's essays, first-hand, ca- first-hand encounters, illustrations, photos, anything to do with the strange and the uncanny. Um, we are happy to include it in our zine. Now, going back to the first issue, the first issue was just you alone, was it not? It was, yeah. I sat at this desk um, and typed out the first issue over the course of like eight hours during um, quarantine two years ago and like sent it to a printer before I even let anyone read it and kind of forced it upon my friends and was like, hey, I made this thing. I'm going to send it to you. What's your address? Not would you like me to send it to you? It's coming in the mail. (laughs) You have no choice in this matter. So now, you know, volume nine is out and you have many contributors to this. How does it feel now to sit at the end of publishing uh, a zine as such and have found yourself working with so many great contributors? I don't think my imposter syndrome could be greater. I don't have any <laughs> idea what I'm doing when I make any of these issues. I sit down and just struggle my way through it until something is ready. But thankfully, like you said, we're getting uh, really, really 
great contributions these days. One of um, a, a two-time contributor, hopefully soon three-time contributor is on this hang with us, your editor, John McEdward. Uh, people like John are contributing often and the stuff that we the the stuff that we're receiving is fantastic and it makes it just makes it feel worth it to me in a way that I never really foresaw when I first started it it just makes it feel like such a, a you know a group effort in the community that I've created whilst doing this it's is like irreplaceable at this point so it's amazing when you open yourself up and take risks in very public ways the amount of support someone can receive and the community that surrounds yourself that you find could surround you in those moments i mean talk about the most authentic connection to people they're connecting with something so vulnerable right and so creative and so authentically you that you you i don't know it's hard not to feel authentically super connected to those individuals very quickly yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that is a huge, huge part of it, and it's sort of like it's help thinking about that when I write has helped me find like the appropriate voice for mm. Strange Days in in a very large way. It's like I don't even have to. It just it it sort of pours out of me naturally now because I know because I know who's reading it or a good majority of the people I can put a face to the name. Alex <laughs> Dorgan, who's also on this call, is this is a is a. Uh, uh, he reads all of them. I know he does. Uh, so I can like put a face to these readers and I, it, it just feels like the most natural way to engage with people who are also interested in this weird stuff that I find myself engrossed in. Yeah. It helps, doesn't it? Especially those moments when, you know, you're creating whatever it is, whether you're writing, whether you're making a film, whether you're making a podcast to feel like you're not as alone in it. For me, I can envision uh, Heather, I can envision John and Darcy, and I can envision all these folks that are either directly contributing to the show and or I know are listening. And that's that's a really great feeling. And I think that for others to know that their friends or new community members are also listening to this, are also reading Strange Days, that's like a very similar feeling in a way, isn't it? It's yeah. such like a weird little club that we're finding ourselves in. Absolutely. And it and it like like simultaneously feels like a really small intimate group of people but also like I'm somehow sending this out to this, the entire world all at once. Like yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like <laughs> It does. Because I I obviously don't I don't engage with everybody who picks up the zine, but I do engage with quite a few people, but it's just like yeah, it's this weird feeling of both like it helps with the vulnerability, but it doesn't eliminate it, if that D makes sense. It, it does. Darcy, what is your take on this? The imposter syndrome, putting it out in the world. Like, I totally get that. I mean, every time I am working on something and, you know, it starts like, yeah, I'm excited about this. Like I'm working on these things. I've got people that are excited about it. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh. Oh, how's it, how's it going to get received? Like, do I do this? Do I finish this? Like, I mean, with right. everything I do, I feel that way, but I think, I think what's challenging is that we live in a space of like, Oh, we live in a space of perfectionism that isn't real. Mm. And so I think that we see, especially in so much like social media and video and YouTube and all these things, we see finished products. Right. And we don't see the behind the scenes. We don't see every draft and every edit. And as creatives, we know that there's so many drafts and so many edits and so <laughs> many things that we have to go through and be like, oh, take this out or, you know, adjust this or, oh, my gosh, how did I just not finish that sentence? Like, right. And so I think that this unrealistic professionalism or perfectionism uh like feeds that imposter syndrome. Oh, so it feeds, interesting. feeds yeah. that idea that if it doesn't come out of the gate, perfect from the first moment, it's not worth putting out there. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is it is rare that anything comes out of the gate. Perfect. Right. Yeah. You have to take in account 
that all of this is a process. Yeah. It's such a, all a process. Such a great process. Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, I, I think you nailed it, Darcy. And, and sorry, I wasn't trying to steer this conversation to be about my neuroses about putting my magazine out there that you're promoting for me. <laughs> no, that was radio. my that was that, my fault that I no, I definitely no. pointed in that direction. But I th- I, the whole point, I mean, we I just try to be as honest as I can about not only the articles that we're writing about it, but about the process and uh, but just about the whole deal. I I'm not here to, uh, even though I can't help but like strive for that perfectionism that Darcy was describing, because you see it every day when you're engaging on the internet, even though I can't help what, but, you know, try to like compare myself to that. It still is like, I'm, I just, part of strange days is just being like forthright about, this is just something that I do by myself in this room. Yeah. And like, that's what it is. So doing it, yeah, doing it. That's like such a big, important thing. Just doing it, just putting it out there. All right, let's uh, let's start talking about some spooky stuff. Uh, sure. You know, last week was was really all about recent UFO reports. Um, we had some late breaking coverage of uh, you know a lot of different reports from the National UFO Reporting Center as well as Liminal Earth. Now, um, you had some late breaking coverage of an international incident. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, are you are you referring to uh, the the one the, the article from Volume Nine about the Ireland sighting? That's right. Yeah. So in early March, um, there was this. I, I think in the article I describe it as mass UFO sighting, but not. I mean, it certainly wasn't as large scale as some uh, other events that you would refer to as mass UFO sightings. But in early March, nonetheless, there were a few dozen people around Ireland who all described seeing this like massive UFO that sounded very eerily familiar to UFOs that get have been getting reported on around the world, especially in the US for years. And in this instance, it was very similar to something that had happened almost 25 years to the day of this sighting. So this sighting um, occurred uh, around or eyewitnesses came from like Donegal, uh, uh, Dublin, Sligo, and there was another town that's escaping me now, but um, these people watched this craft that they all described very, very similar. They described it as like uh, super low flying, silent, massive, like a football field size thing, like very low over their house. Some people said it had lights on that were super bright. Some people said it didn't have lights on by the time they saw it as it made its way over the Irish countryside. Um, But they said someone described it being similar to like a stealth bomber, except that person said it did have lights on it. So that didn't really make sense for a stealth bomber to be, you know, like not stealth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was interesting. Um, That same person went on to say that what they thought was profoundly creepy about it was that it was, much lower than a domestic flight, super big and completely silent. And it just like went over their house and then just like disappeared like out of sight, basically. Oh man. Um, and they said it didn't seem, it didn't seem like anything that they thought the Irish military would have. I don't think that they uh, probably are dabbling in top secret aircraft as much as other countries in the world. Um, and yeah, other accounts that came in basically um, echoed that. Just a lot of a lot of folks saying that they saw this thing. Like I said, the main points being that it was huge and that it was silent. So oh as I so this was in March of 2022, and uh, as I mentioned, this was like right around the anniversary of the Phoenix Lights, which was like an eerily similar case. If you're if you're not familiar with the Phoenix Lights. Um, you should look into it because we don't have time to, to tell you the whole story, but it's fascinating. And it's an event where people saw something very similar. This, there were sort of two different um, things that happened in Phoenix on that night in 97, but it was like the first thing was someone saw, or people saw like one massive singular craft. And then the second thing was people saw these like groups of lights and some speculated it was several craft and some that it was one, the same massive craft that had been seen before but basically the story of the phoenix lights is is um super similar to what happened in ireland except that the phoenix lights there were so many more people that saw it that it couldn't help but be covered by like mainstream media and it turned into 
a whole thing. And the governor sort of mocked the whole situation. As I said, it's like a whole story that you can certainly um, yeah, and, and look and people, into. Yeah. And people can check out the, the story in volume nine and, and you yes. have some great details on the, on the Phoenix light Phoenix lights and its comparison to, to this sighting. It, I mean, man, it's amazing because it does seem like these large scale corroborative sightings are happening more and more often out there. Um, listen, uh, a, a dozen people corroborating an event like this it does feel big to me, you know? Um, maybe not as big as uh, something like Phoenix, but, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not a, uh, a statistician here, but perhaps uh, based on population alone in the Southwest compared to, uh, you know, uh, Ireland and parts therein, you know, might be... Um, comparatively uh similar who knows or or you know ireland uh, doesn't have a ton of people so uh you know right. maybe that maybe that's just maybe it's just a thing of odds here but um you know as as this conversation thanks for sharing that andrew of course as this conversation is brought up about uh the state of ufos uh not just in this country but but in the world we we of course know domestically there's a lot of talk about some of the political um, uh, movements of bu bureaucracy that is happening uh, here in this country. I want to know what 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 uh, what you guys think about the recent public congressional hearings over quote UAP end quote. I want to hear what your take on those were. I mean, it, I think that the aspects of the phenomena that I'm interested in are different than what these meetings are about. Not, not exclusively different, but I think that I find, I find myself in situations when where so I was asked this question last week by a, a coworker mm -hmm. and I've realized that I have reached the point of no return where I can no longer have like a water cooler, like level conversation about this, because mm -hmm. how do you tell someone or you know like that you oh well i i think it's uh, you know they're the same thing as fairies like gray aliens are fairies like everybody you don't know that like what do you, like so i feel i realize i'm like so <laughs> far into this that like the the what they're discussing in congress is like they're discussing you know these these same things that people are seeing but they're discussing them i think from like a very nuts and bolts point of view and i think that without getting too political unfortunately what will ultimately happen is this will be spun into there are, it's already, is it a threat or not? That's what, that's why they care about this conversation. They don't want to know like what they're not asking like the same questions that we're asking, right? they just want to know if it's a threat and that's the spin they're putting on it. So it's sort of hard for me to engage with that in a way, because that's not like what I'm seeking when I'm looking into this stuff, it just feels like it's a totally different approach to it than, than I'm at right now. But I do think it's important and very impressive that they're having the conversation. Obviously I was very stoked. The idea that they had this first hearing since blue book is incredible. Um, I just feel like the tone and like the motives are just not exactly aligned with like my interest in, in all of it. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah it's a it, it great great take and and you uh have made me realize some things here that maybe i'll share uh darcy what was your what, what's your perspective i mean i i think i'm kind of with andrew as far as like we're we're asking kind of different kinds of questions but of course my academic brain kicks in and i think about like one I know, and we've like talked about this before, but like the government is not going to go full disclosure. Like they're just not because it would incite such insane panic. And we have to think on a national level, like the U.S., which many people in the U.S. unfortunately think like the U.S. is the world, but the U.S. has to maintain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, come on. Right. Like <laughs> the U.S. has to maintain its position as the world leader as like the the cowboy in the white hat who is going to be the you know always in control always <laughs> has a handle on things even though really the u.s comparison to many other countries is just like a petulant teenager like historically so <laughs> i think we're just at a point like on a nuts and bolts level that congress can no longer be like i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> because people are like 
there's a video and then these pilots and, you know, these military people are like, we've seen some things. So I think that, you know, it's great that they're talking about it, but it's also politically, this is not the first time that the, you know, the U S government has started talking about UFOs. Like, and I think for folks that are newer to research, they're like, Oh my gosh. And I was like, yes, it is exciting for sure. Let's, but at the same time, let's just remember last year, they delivered us a nine page report. <laughs> yeah, they were like, here it is. And nine it's all page. balloons, you know, like, and so I think that is it, Great. Yes. Are they going to ask the questions that we're asking? Probably not. Um, but they can't not say anything at this point, but they're not going to say everything. Like, I just think about the levels of, and I'm about to sound very conspiratorial. <laughs> I do oh, know what I mean to, but Here we, we have to think about the levels of government and what information gets passed through. And there are going to be things that we're never going to know. Right. And while some people are like, we should know them. I'm like, you can't hand like not to sound Jack Nicholson. -y in, Here we go. Uh, Do, men, it. Like, Do it, Darce. You can't handle the truth. Like <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of these same people that are calling for like, it, you got to tell us everything. I'm like, you can't even figure out how to get along with people that are a little bit different than you. And you're right. ready for like this full, like this full disclosure supposedly. So I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that we're getting there. <laughs> I just don't. And I think, I think that, you know, it's great that more people are exploring these things, but I also feel like in this time of such uncertainty, right. That people are looking for answers in whatever that is like, Church attendance numbers are low in a lot of areas and people are going more into the woo. And so they're looking for these answers over here. And it's like, I think a lot of people are losing faith in the government and are looking to say like, well, maybe they'll give me some, maybe they'll give me answers on this, but they're, they're not going to give us those. They're not going to give us all those layers. They can't give us all those layers. Right. It would, it would disrupt the America that presents to the world, even though like you can, we can all look and be like, mm, we've got a lot of challenges, but like it, it's a, it, it would do too, it would do too much damage. It would do you too know, much. This is all uh, adding fuel to my fire in regards to an idea that I have that we are just in the 1990s again. And, and the, yeah. they were, we're cycling through some stuff that, that we've already been through here. And uh, we should just look to those, those, uh, those facts and what happened then to inform what's going to happen next, maybe. Um, which is Beanie Babies coming back. But um, <laughs> you know, it also, it also, you know, sort of reminds me, you know, the government, uh, you know, what what is what is some of their job or what is some of their um, things that they weigh heavily on? It's like, is this going to kill? all of us immediately or not and you know not really ever addressing like what the root of any sort of issue is no matter what it is and we're seeing that everywhere right now like the root of issues never getting addressed it's just sort of like all right how can we keep like the the cars moving kind of down the road and people barely being able to afford things and just you know inside watching netflix anyway the, the old saying is a band-aid on a bullet wound like we are not as a culture <laughs> we are not a proactive culture we're a responsive culture in america and you know capitalism drives a lot even what you know the things that you're bringing up so it, it i sound so conspiratorial no. <laughs> it's episode Darcy. but i mean this is what you're sounding like an academic. I think okay. you're fulfilling Jim's dreams of being a late night radio host right now with, with all of this conspiracy so. talk. Let's go deeper after this next break. Let's start talking about the shape of earth and, uh, and what's going on with that. Um, okay. We, we do have to take a short break here on night drift. I'm Jim Perry. We'll be right back with more 
from Andrew Jewell and Darcy Staniforth. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. the unknown and our relationship to it. This is Night Drift with Jim Perry. We're back drifting deeper into the night. You can follow us across social media at Euphemet. If you want more of the program, you can find it on the Euphemet feed wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit euphemet.com. And do you have a paranormal experience that has changed your life? That has shaped how you think? That has made you consider things just a little bit differently you can share it with me at jim at euphemet.com and tonight i'm back here with andrew jewell and darcy staniforth we're previewing volume nine of the strange day zine and somewhere along the line this has become a conspiracy show (laughs) but um but you're welcome (laughs) thank you darcy Uh, so andrew you know One of the things I love about Strange Days is the effort to cover stories from really all over the world. Sometimes, I mean, forget the world, even the furthest reaches of space, other dimensions. But it goes to say that stories are not concentrated uh, domestically. They're not concentrated exclusively stateside. In other words, we know strange events are occurring everywhere. And in this volume, you have this story about a Japanese killing stone containing an ancient spirit that splits in two. What can you tell us about this? I was hoping you were going to ask about this because this was maybe my favorite article from volume nine. And it's, it's a perfect mix between like folklore and paranormal and a story that started in the 12th century and, and is now being talked about again in 2022. But, um, Basically, what the the Cliff's Notes version of the story is that there is this, there was is this stone in Japan um, on the slopes of Mount Nasu, which is a volcano, and it's called the. I'm I'm very very sorry to any any uh, Japanese speaking listeners, but I'm not going to be able to pronounce this well. But it's called the Sesho Siki, I think, and it's translated to the Killing Stone. And basically, the legend mm-hmm. behind this as I said, goes back to the 12th century. And um, the idea was that the then emperor, whose name was Emperor Toba, had um, an enemy who wanted to try to take the throne from him. And the the enemy summoned this um, this kitsune spirit, which was uh, 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 is like a fox with nine tails. And they, mm. they summoned the spirit to take the form of a woman to uh, get close to the emperor and then kill him so the throne could be taken over. And uh, the plan was found out by the emperor and um, it it was nearly successful. As the story goes, the woman got very, very close to him. He was like her, his, she was his favorite, um, like of all of his servants. Uh, But then he found out the plan and she was chased out of the empire and he sent his two uh, most feared warriors to follow her. And they chased her through the forest for weeks and they, they sort of lost track of her. And then one night um, the, 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 one of the warriors had a dream. She came, the Kitsune came to this warrior in his dream and said, you know, please stop chasing me. Don't kill me. And he basically said, 
sorry, I have no choice. They found her the next day, as the legend goes, on the slopes of Mount Nasu. And um, he pulled up his bow and he had an arrow drawn. And just as it struck her, she all of a sudden left her form as a beautiful Japanese woman and took the form of a stone, a rock, the killing stone. And so the legend was that her soul, the soul of this kitsune, was trapped in this rock. And it's has sat on the slope of this volcano ever since, since like the late 12th century. And it actually became historically landmarked. It's a bit, it was a big tourist attraction. It's probably now a bigger tourist tourist attraction than ever because in early May, uh, someone who was visiting noticed that the stone had like been, had split in half. Uh, and now the idea is that this, um, this sort of diabolical spirit that's been trapped in this stone for centuries has now escaped. So oh, there's wow. that. <laughs> but, you know, of course now. <laughs> right. I mean, it, I don't think there was any other year that this was ever g- bound to happen other than 2022. Right. Right. Um, fascinating. Fascinating. Um, Andrew, how much of, you know, these stories relating to historical or folkloric um, tales uh, captivates you in what your pursuits are now. Is that a big interest in yours? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I just think that anybody who spends enough time interested in these subjects and reading about them or writing about them or what have you, you realize that most experiences, while they are unique to the experiencer, have happened before, right? I mean, there's not a lot of, I don't come across a lot of stories like contemporary stories on the internet that are completely 100% unique and that haven't been told or written about in some form before. And a lot of this stuff we perceive as folklore mythology, but you know, it's when those two things intersect, when you start to draw, you start to see the parallels between folkloric stories and firsthand encounters you start to think well where did this come from it's we consider it folklore now but it had to have started somewhere and it it seems like it's people i mean it seems like it it plausible that it could have come from an experience that someone had so yeah that's that's those are definitely my favorite stories to seek out when when researching for strange days darcy you're heavily involved in historical matters in fact right now i after this want to ask you a little bit about the update of you know a very his, historic haunted location that you're you're uh you're um captaining you're championing yeah. <laughs> you're the ambassador of uh but but firstly to to, to speak um you know uh, about what andrew said about the uh the importance and or the prominence of folklore history being integrated into these things and showing us that like oh yeah the the experiencers uh potentially the event that happened to them has happened to others and it's happened potentially for a long time yeah i mean i i think it's one of the things that um came really to the forefront of my mind when i was doing research on black-eyed children Mm. And, you know, black eyed children is a great example of what we call contemporary legend, because a lot of people are like, it started with creepypasta in the 90s and message boards and all these. But when you talk to some other folks, they will tell you that there are examples of black eyed children and people experiencing black eyed children. It's just not called black eyed children. Right. Mm. So we also have to think about historically how uh, language evolves. Right. And Mm -hmm. how uh, things change and what we might call something at a time. I was literally just having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with some other American studies colleagues. And one of them mentioned the fact that, um, up until a certain, like, if you went and researched giraffes, like, gir- you know, a giraffe, up until a certain point, you, like, you can only go back so far, and then you're not going to start, you're not going to see the word giraffe in mm. searching for things. Because when they were first discovered, they were called camel leopards. 
Hmm. And so people can go like, oh, well, just research on giraffes didn't exist. No, it did. They just had a different name. Right. And so we have to think about that with this type of phenomena and when we're researching phenomena. And so that's one aspect as far as like experiencers. But I think another aspect that is really important to think about is especially when certain folklore becomes very popular and certain, you know, with you, like we're talking about UFOs. We're talking about this incredible, like this Japanese killing stone. I love this story so much, but like, why does this take hold in a culture at the time it does? And it's really important to really look at like, what is this reflecting about our culture? What is this also reflecting about our cultural anxiety? Right. Right. Yeah. UFOs like talking, you know, tying this to what we've talked about so far, like distrust of the government. Right. And so see, it can either reinforce like, see, there's more reasons to distrust the government or people can look at the congressional hearings and say, no, this reinforces that I can trust them because, see, they're telling us about things. Right. 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 And so then if you can look at a folklore like the Japanese Killing Stone and let's say there's other tragedies happening in that area, well, then you can give it a reason for happening, right? You can give it a reason or it can capture these things. You can look through horror movies. Horror movies capture our cultural anxiety all the time. Yeah, right. But so does our interest in the paranormal. And certain Mm -hmm. things we see kind of continuously, but other things kind of go through their you know, their, their highs and their lows for us. We're always excited about it all the time, but for some (laughs) folks, they're like, I just got really into, let's say Bigfoot. It's like, well, you know, why is Bigfoot having its cultural moment? Why are zombies having their cultural moment? So these are things to think about of what is culture being, what culture is being reflected and what cultural anxieties are being reflected. Well, it's so smart. And some would say that the nature of the phenomenon acts in similar ways. And that mm-hmm. it's a conversation, it's a two-way street, maybe even a three-way street, maybe even a relationship with the street that we can't even see or put our feet on, but that it is in some form and fashion causal, it's retrocausal, it can be a mirror. It's, it's flexible yet rigid in its attempt to connect this to it and to somehow find ways to show itself to us in ways that we can relate to or ways that we are compelled to even engage greater with it. It's fascinating. Tells us a lot about us, right? Totally. Absolutely. Andrew, um, listen, I think I want to, I want to take this opportunity to bring on John McEdward. That's a great idea. Hey John, how you doing tonight? Hey, Jim. Hey, everyone. John, of course, is a Euphemet's editor. We are in the midst of a, a flurry of editing right now uh, in a myriad of projects. John uh, was was really greatly responsible for the last feature, which included me sort of... Uh, I was going to disregard it and say, you know, yammering on about the last four years of Euphemet, but I won't. I won't do that. What I will say is that John was a keen interviewer and was able to tap into whatever energy I was possessing outside of the Sour Patch Kids I was eating at that time to, to get some good insight. So thank you. Thank you for that, John. You should be commended for your work there, my friend. Thanks so much, Jim. Yeah, of course. The the Sour Patch riffs were, were getting you through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, listen, in addition to working on Uvamet, you have your own podcast in which I want you to share a little bit about in a second. But in addition to that, you you have been contributing to Strange Days. And you yeah. have you have a story in volume nine. Do you want to share a little bit about uh, what you wrote about? Yeah, totally. Um, I heard about Andrew during our night drift hangout, like whenever that was last time. Mm. and immediately bought all of the volumes at the time. I think there was five or six at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then wrote for seven, uh, a story about a, a Sasquatch experience I'll share maybe another time. But uh, for for this article, uh, when me and Ami were first starting Anomalous Waves, I was reading a lot of uh, Keel's articles. And Anomalous Waves, your podcast. 
Yes, our uh, our podcast, Anomalous Waves. I'm terrible at plugging or okay. uh, marketing or any so of I'm that here. jazz. That's why you thanks so much, Jim. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was reading a lot from uh, uh, Flying Saucer to the Center of Your Mind. Um, and there's one article in there called The UFO Name Game uh, that Keel put out in 76. And it's all about how uh, many times people with uncommon last names throughout decades or centuries apart uh, will be UFO experiencers. Oh, wow. And that most of the time it's not like Smith or Jones or anything like that. He also makes connection to um, saying that like a lot of last names will refer to water in some way. Wow. Um, and he uses the example of Reeds, which was uh, he, he brought up several experiencers uh, throughout time with the last name Reeves. Um, but it's similar to a French word meaning riverbank. Um, and in English, reeve is a nautical term meaning to pass a rope through a hole. So he goes on to anchors because uh, that. So when he goes on to anchors, he goes on to all these really interesting mystery airship sightings that involve uh, anchors, uh, a small humanoid figure in like, a sailor suit descending down the rope mm -hmm. um, and the mm -hmm. anchor being caught somewhere uh, and it being observed by churchgoers. And uh, then the, the person cuts the rope and they float off. And he gives three examples of this. Um, one was in 1897, one was in 1200 AD, and one was in 956 AD. Well, my gosh. Um, so all very similar stories spanning crazy amounts of time. The last one he talks about is from Merkle, Texas in 1897. And Robert Hibbard sees an anchor dragging through his field. It grabs him like uh, in the, uh, the groin area, lifts him up. And he grabs like a little sapling bush and it tears his pants. And he, he, he survives. <laughs> he makes it. <laughs> they say that he was like close call, super close call. Uh, but he could, you know, people said that he was trustworthy and that they believed at least he believed uh, what he experienced. Wow. Yeah. So a while later, I'm researching park ranger stories. A guy named uh, Robert, I believe Robert Taylor um, in 1979 in Scotland. And he saw a spaceship just in a clearing. He's a, a forestry worker. And these two balls and spheres come at him and he like passes out, wakes up, like tries to drive home, crashes the car. <laughs> He's in like a panic. Oh gosh. Um, his, his wife calls the cops. They find actual, these strange track marks, all sorts of stuff there. Um, and they take his pants because there's a tear in the front of the pants Oh my uh, gosh. As, as an assault, uh, they think. Oh and man. forensics found that the pants were ripped by something hooking and moving up. Oh, no. So um, this is like three <laughs> years after Keel's article. Uh, this happened. Really? Um, but it doesn't mention airships. It doesn't mention a grapnel, a hook. Yeah. Uh, but two people named Robert who were trustworthy, uh, years and years apart, totally different places of the world, both ended up with ripped pants after a very strange encounter. So, <laughs> Unreal. Oh, so my God. I went back to the Keel article immediately and was like, yeah, that's too weird. Yeah. And you're like, too can weird. I write an addendum to this? Sir? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, hey, just to uh, in, in testament to what you were just describing in terms of Keel's research that he had found that individuals with uh, unique names and in particular some that were relating to water had potentially an, an increased, I don't know, an increased propensity to experience these things or vice versa. Uh, AJ Rainwater is in our chat right now, uh, a patron. <laughs> Who says my last name is Rainwater and I've had my multiple UFO experiences? Wow. Yeah, for sure. 
That's amazing. <laughs> Happening in real time live. <laughs> yes. Yes. Unreal. Uh, Jay, yeah, let's um maybe one of these next hangouts have you call in and um join the conversation. And uh yeah, get get your stories if you'd like to share them. That would be incredible. Well, Andrew, it's um it's for sure certain that you're doing some great work over at Strange Days. And you're assembling a, a good group of individuals to report these stories and dig through the historical elements therein and also capture some late breaking stories. Uh, you know, you're a successor to uh, the Fate magazine that does not exist anymore. <laughs> I mean, Fate magazine definitely exists, but it does not exist in this way anymore. And so uh, it, it's great to see. And uh, yeah, th thank you so much for doing that. Um, before I let you go, you know, maybe just one more one more story, if you could elaborate a little bit more. Um, we're talking about international incidents. We're talking about things that affect us on a global scale. And you have this story about a, a transtemporal shaman. Yeah, so this is one that um, my good friend Ian Schneider wrote for this volume. And Ian is, is uh, he has pretty deep-seated roots in, in a lot of things, but specifically sort of, um, I don't know if he would call himself pagan identifying, but he has, he has ties to that sort of, uh, you know, mindset, I, I guess. So he, yeah, he, he hit me up when I, we were working on the new issue and he told me about this like crazy news article that he saw um, that in the wake of what was happening in, in the Ukraine, it was something that was reported by some France news outlet um, or French news outlet. And it, it was basically just this man who had set up his altar in the middle of a stone circle in the middle of a park in um, I can't remember the name of the Ukrainian town, but in a small town in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And he was basically there representing like his faith uh, mm -hmm. and bring in, and was there in just to be sort of uh, a spiritual, a, a, a spiritual, like, I don't know, support for the Ukrainian people. And he had yeah. a, he had a very, in this, in this interview that he gave to French TV, um, he just had a very interesting perspective and he seemed very calm and very, um, I mean, just for lack of a better word, enlightened. And it was just like a very strange juxtaposition to everything else that was happening in the Ukraine at the time. And he had seemingly just like, like I said, he set up his altar in the middle of the stone circle with no, there was no one else around when this yeah. French reporter approaches him and that he was just there sort of by himself for there. It wasn't, it didn't seem like it, he was doing it specifically for any sort of show. Uh, he just was there to show his support to his, his people in that way. And it was like super interesting clip, uh, an interesting article that Ian wrote about it. And I was glad he brought it to my attention and happy to put it in the zine because it's just nice to see, you know, as you said, international, I, I'm only realizing now how, how many international articles there were in volume nine, but yeah, this article um, specifically just, you know, being a, a sort of small little beam of light in the midst of what had been happening over in the Ukraine. It was very, very interesting. Uh, moving, you know, yes, and the, the, the stills from the footage, uh, resonate right yeah. and there's a almost a certain frequency projected from the images themselves which is really i don't want to say eerie but strange in 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 the best of ways yet listen it's also like a a, a real somber time yes you no know? so I, I think important to cover things like this and and listen when when you're talking about a place like ukraine um and that area of the world steeped in its own myth and legend and lore. And you talk about a place that it has incredible amounts of supernatural activity. Uh, this is the place. And it's almost as if wartime creates a liminal zone for oh, absolutely. better or worse. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As you said, a strange thing, but in a good way, in a very intriguing way, and 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 
yeah, just it, it is another example of seeing how people are able to use, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to compare this man's faith to me being interested in the paranormal, but it's, there's certainly like some crossover there. And it's just like, I don't know. It, it's interesting to see someone be able to use this to support their community, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, take some lessons. UAP Twitter. That's all I'm saying. Ugh. Jeez. That's all I'm saying. Sorry, don't I had to bring them, it all. Don't get down. them mad at you. I had to bring it all down. Uh, Do no, not we're, get we're UAP Twitter at mad at you. Yeah, we're we're friends. Um, uh, okay, everybody, we got to end the show. We have ran out of time here. Real quick, uh, Andrew, where where do people find Strange Days? Where do they find your work? Um, we are on Instagram, Twitter uh, at Strange Days Zine. You can reach out to us directly at Strange Days Zine at gmail.com. Um, yeah, that's that. Those are the places to find us. If you're interested in buying the zine, our uh, links to all of it, the shop, the social media are all at strangedayszine.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining the show again, Andrew. Thank you for having me. And Darcy, where can people connect with you? Uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Darcy Staniforth, all one word. And if people are local to Orange County right now, they can uh, jump on hauntedoc.com and look up the Kellogg House and come join me on a haunted historical tour. I am the tour docent, haunted host, captain, whatever you want to call it, of that location right now. So you would, um, anyone that joins me on that would be with me. So come on out. Well, I will tell listeners right now, if you were a Patreon member... And a part of this conversation, you would hear an extended conversation after the fact of Darcy breaking down some of what's happening to her at the Kellogg house, how haunted and mysterious and strange that story is getting, and some uh, just personal communication. So consider joining us over at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash euphemet, and you can find everything at euphemet.com. Thank you for listening to Night Drift with Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, KKNW, 1150 AM Seattle. You can hear the show anytime on its podcast feed, wherever you listen to them. Go to euphemet.com for more and join us next Sunday. And until then, keep looking up.